Welcome to Review the Future, the podcast that takes an in-depth look at the impact of technology on culture. I am Ted Cupper. I'm John Perry. And today we're asking the question, who controls the future of decentralized technologies? So it seems like it makes sense to start by defining decentralized the way that I'm using it by giving an example of a centralized technology versus a decentralized technology. So a classic example of a centralized technology might be something like nuclear weapons, which sure. you got to enrich uranium, you got to have probably a nation state. To, yeah, to there's a lot of off. technical knowledge you have to have as well as physical capacity. You've got to build giant things that are observable from space and, uh, and you got to utilize them in a complicated manner to, uh, to make a working nuclear weapon. Um, but uh, a decentralized technology that is very damaging as well is something like fire. Right. I mean, fire is just a simple idea, uh, which is that, you know, fuel plus friction basically creates fire. And once people figure that out, uh, you can't really control that. Right. So that chemical reaction is relatively easy to induce. Uh, and so it, uh, once you know about it, uh, can be induced by almost anyone with uh, very few tools in a lot of different circumstances. Uh, and it, of course, is very destructive, so it can give the person who's wielding it uh, some power in, in much the same way a nuke can. Common wisdom and history would suggest that the decentralized technology like fire is a lot harder to control or limit, and that you know attempts to control decentralized technologies are very likely to fail and potentially expensive for all involved. So to give some examples, I think the, the first uh, attempt to control a decentralized technology that I can think of in our cultural history is literally the Prometheus story, which is right. actually an attempt to control specifically fire. Fire, right. Uh, and uh, it's an attempt by mythological gods, obviously, to uh, control fire. The authority figures back uh, then. But, right. But this uh, represents, I think, uh, something uh, that's v very uh, real even now. And, of course, uh, lashing Prometheus to the rock and having the, the buzzard eat his liver every day did no good whatsoever on restraining man from using fire. The human still got fire. Right? I mean, there was a terrible punishment, but uh, that it was a completely ineffectual one. <laughs> Which is not that different from uh, a modern day war on a decentralized technology, which is the war on drugs. Yes. Which has, you know, and drugs are a technology. Uh, sometimes they're just a technology for feeling good and not for, for medical purposes, but that's still a technology. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I think the consensus is growing that this has not been a successful attempt to to control this technology. Yeah, whatever you're feeling on whether the war on drugs should have happened, uh, everyone's in agreement that it's not working, it's not preventing people from taking drugs, and it's not even really raising the price of drugs, which would be what you'd expect to see if it was sort of working. And uh, what we're finding is that because the technology of making drugs, which... Uh, it varies, obviously, drug to drug, but it's never that complicated. It's I mean, like making, growing a plant yeah. or refining some chemicals um, in, in, a, in a trailer lab or something like that. It generally is easy enough that somebody figures out how to do it, and you can't shut down all the labs. You can't find all the growth spots, etc. I mean, people make alcohol in prison or in bathtubs. Yeah. You can grow uh, pot just about anywhere. You can, you know, make methamphetamines from... Uh, sometimes you can available chemicals, from, right? Available pharmaceuticals. Pretty much any drug uh, that's out there is some combination of growing something and processing something, and both of those things can be done a lot of places. I mean, those are simple technologies that are easy to recreate. They're not like enriching uranium, to give your other example. Another sort of modern day a war, you could say, on a decentralized technology, or at least a large coordinated attempt to control this technology, is 
the technology of copying files or what we sometimes call piracy. You know, the war on piracy has, I think, also not been very effective at preventing people who want to pirate things just the same way that uh, the war on drugs hasn't been that effective at preventing people from getting drugs. Now, what they've done a better job at in some industries is competing with the pirates. Um, right, right. That's what I was just thinking is that the, uh, the top-down uh, legal <clears throat> and even code approaches to stopping piracy have been relatively ineffective. But what's been surprisingly effective is just uh, providing decent services at de- decent prices, which many people have just chosen, it seems. Which they're starting to do in the war on drugs now that they're legalizing pot in certain states or introducing medical marijuana. You could call it that's sort of the same move. Instead of trying to clamp down on it, you're just getting in on the industry and providing a more convenient service that doesn't have the uh, legal threats attached to it. Right, right. Well, the government can easily make drug buying more convenient by simply promising to stop arresting you for doing it. <laughs> um, but uh, in the case of, of the piracy thing, we obviously have other private companies that used to be trying to wield law against their customers who are now waking up to the idea that uh, they'd probably better sell those customers something uh, that the customers want. But yeah, in, in both cases, the ham-fisted attempts to just say, you can't do this, haven't been super successful. And again... Right, to uh, the extent that piracy has gone down or, or become less of a concern lately, it's because of uh, increased competitive response by, by the rights holders, not necessarily from legal or, or code-based uh, anti-piracy efforts. And copying technology is still extremely decentralized. I mean, we almost all have a computational device that can copy files relatively easily, and uh, I guess that copying could be monitored, but I don't think that uh, we see a lot of people getting you know in trouble for that these days the way that maybe they were attempting in the past. Now we get into things that are, I think, a little less obvious because, you know, they don't so easily have the phrase war on in front of them and they're not maybe hitting their full stride yet. But uh, I want to talk about surveillance. So surveillance, I think, you know, and I I want to make a distinction because there's the very centralized surveillance that is in the news about, you know, coming from the NSA. But Mm -hmm. I'm talking about surveillance that is individual people surveilling each other. Right. Decentralized surveillance technology is what we're talking about, right? So people have camera phones. People uh, increasingly are having AR glasses like Google Glass on their face that have cameras attached to them. And as camera sensors get smaller and smaller, uh, more and more of the people around you are going to be either intentionally or unintentionally able to uh, surveil you. And it's clear that some people uh, will not like this. They will not like to be recorded or surveilled uh, when they're out in public um, and have their movements monitored and their face uh, recognized and on the internet. I guess, you know, following the same logic as these previous examples, uh, it seems like those people are not going to get their way. Like any- right. Well, you can imagine them trying to clamp down on surveillance technologies, and you see some halting steps toward this already, like um, businesses banning the Google Glass, or obviously uh, movie theaters are going to try to keep them out because they see it as a piracy problem. That's a continuation of that whole war on copying, yeah, right. in a way. It, well, in a way, the, the life-logging technology becomes piracy technology when you walk into a movie theater they're all of a sudden they're the same thing as uh as these technologies get better and better uh more and more people will have a reason to want them restricted in order to protect their current uh status quo but uh because they are decentralized and rely on individual people using individual products it's going to be hard to to actually do away with them Uh, it's going to be harder and harder to tell when people even have them on Right now, you can tell Google Glass from regular glasses super easily, but you could easily imagine in a few years' time, 
that the camera part will be small enough that it'll be indistinguishable from a regular pair of glasses. Well, and they already have, you know, spy cameras and things that people can use that are not uh, designed to be mass market products that you can pick up that it's, you know, if you want to do a little digging online and spend some money and order some things, you can, you can carry on your person surveillance equipment. Right. Even now, that's very surreptitious, and that's only going to get easier and cheaper over time. So uh, you can imagine, even though there'd be a lot of impetus to control that kind of technology, uh, it'll likely fail, I'd imagine. That's what I'm anticipating. Um, and again, this is following the general logic that these decentralized technologies are so hard to control, as we've seen. And another one that I want to bring up is... Uh, Gun control, which is an attempt to, of course, control the decentralized technology of guns. And this is, I think, a more loaded one already because it's pretty easy to argue that this is an actually dangerous technology. It's a weapon. It can certainly be used to kill people. Um, you know, in the case of, you know, drugs, maybe people kill themselves sometimes. But, you know, guns can be used actually to, to do a great deal of damage to other people. And then the question is, you know, can we control guns have we been doing a good job of controlling it and it would seem that you know at least in some parts of the world we have not been. right right i mean this makes me think of an even bigger sort of question which is like can technological bans work and it seems like you know with centralized technologies you can have decently effective technological bans that genuinely slow down well, we talked about nukes adoption. so there's anti-proliferation sure so nukes and- for example have been proliferating i mean pakistan got the bomb and some yes. other places have uh, iran obviously is very close or has been close several times but concerted efforts by other nation states to do espionage against them have so far been successful so it is possible to retard the uh, the development of nukes even the number when people of, want it. The number of actors involved is way lower, so there's some coordination and and the efforts that can right. be successful. And the number of people who can plausibly do that, it's like, yeah, your suspect list is low. It's low, exactly. So uh, you, it is possible for powerful states like uh, like this one to affect that. But with these decentralized technologies, bans rarely work. And I mean, guns obviously have been under various amounts of control in different parts of the world for years and years. And even here, we, of course, have gun control, uh, even though we also have a strong culture uh, and legal uh, history that allows certain kinds of gun use uh, very explicitly. But even when you make guns illegal, that's a tool that you give to law enforcement to fight criminals and to put them away. But it doesn't actually stop people from wielding guns. I mean, everybody kind of knows that. Uh, If you want a particular gun, you can get it. And that's going to be even easier in the near future. They've already, I think, 3D printed a gun. Yeah, there there was a big news story recently, and I I think it was maybe more of a gimmicky thing where somebody just did it as a one-off, but somebody successfully 3D printed uh, the parts to a gun to kind of demonstrate this idea, I think, was the whole point. Right, and the idea isn't just that, like, this year's 3D printer doesn't need to work to make a gun. You know, eventually they'll th- that'll be possible. And certainly, if you're a criminal, uh, you know, and you're set on on the crime that you're committing, uh, you're yeah. gonna find a way to pull this off. You'll get a gun, whatever way is easiest for you. So, I mean, I don't like guns any more than anybody else, and uh, I would love to see them vanish. But the same logic uh, kind of has to apply here. It's it's a decentralized technology, and it doesn't yield very well to centralized control. Yeah, no, I agree with that. Uh, of the examples that we've listed, uh, we've talked about uh, uh, drugs, piracy, surveillance, gun control. Two of those, piracy and surveillance, are kind of similar to each other in that both of them are essentially computer technologies. 
And in a way, they're the same computers that are doing the copying and that are doing the surveillance. And if we want to talk about 3D printing of guns, that's again, starts to be the same computer, right? And we might even get to a point where that same computer is, you know, potentially even 3D printing the actual drugs. So the point is that as everything kind of starts to become a computer, which is a theme we've talked about before on this podcast, all these attempts to sort of colloquially wage war on these decentralized technologies or just try to control them might turn into more of what uh, Cory Doctor has called a war on general purpose computing. Right, because over time, more and more of the decentralized technologies you'd want to fight are actually just features of a single decentralized technology, which is general purpose computing. If you can reprogram your computer to do anything, you can reprogram it to be a pirate, to be a surveiller. Well, it's got the print gun app. It's, it's got yeah, the exactly. You can hook up a three D printer. Secrets app. Yeah, all the things that you might want to control, they ultimately just all become bad software running on good computers. It's got the Get Me High app. I mean, once we can get a Get Me High app, everyone's going to have it. That's for sure. Yeah, this battlefield then for this uh, war, if we're going to call it that uh, for now, is is growing then, right? Because if everything's a computer and it all kind of becomes the same thing and as Cory Doctor has also pointed out, um, you know, these computers, they're, you know, becoming our cars, right? Our cars are computers, or they're going into our bodies in the case of, you know, artificial limbs for certain people or uh, artificial hearts even eventually, or like, you know, our houses essentially are going to start becoming computers. Sure. Uh, our houses are certainly getting filled with more and more computers. Our refrigerators and TVs and things like that are becoming computers. And uh, soon the houses themselves will have, you know, displays painted on the walls and uh, sensors in the So if you live in inside a computer and computers live inside you uh, and it, there's a big battle going on over who controls the computers, you can see how the s- stakes get really, really high really fast. Right. If the computers inside you are trusted systems uh, that are under control of some entity that's not you... That's potentially a serious problem for you, whether that entity is a company or the government or whoever it is. That's a problem, certainly for your personal rights. I mean, certainly you would want to be interested in, you know, who has that much control over you and your person. Yeah, Um, it makes you dependent on them because they can shut off your services or change the way they work at, uh, at will, essentially. Right, which is now we're sort of, we've transitioned into a different side of this, which is, again, we were starting with the sort of common wisdom that these decentralized technologies are hard to control. But kind of the flip side is that is maybe in, a, in certain scenarios, they're actually extremely easy to control. Uh, and the first time I remember thinking about this idea was reading Larry Lessig's book. Mm-hmm. Um, his, I think is his first book, which is Code and Other Laws of Cyberspace. Right. Where he sort of describes the sense in that, you know, programming code is a lot like legal code, except that it's, you know, much less forgiving, right? It sort of... It allows this almost perfect... Right. There is no court system, so it just executes. And however the machine thinks it's supposed to execute is how the code runs. Right. There's sort of a perfect enforcement that's uh, not even necessarily seen by the user, right? Right. Well, in the case of closed source, you don't even know what it's doing. Uh, And there's no way for you to really even find out. Um, It just does whatever it does, and you have to accept the result. And he was focused at the time, I mean, this would have been... This is the late 90s, I think, when he was writing this, right? Like 98, 99? No, I think it was maybe early 2000s, maybe late 90s, I'm not sure. But he was focused at the time on sort of the issue of net neutrality, which is a big issue now, or at least it's more in the headlines and people are more familiar with it than they were. Now that there isn't any of it left, people are much more familiar with it. But back then we had net neutrality, so nobody worried about it. Well, and he he saw that it was going to die. I mean, that was the doomsday prediction in a way of the book. 
Um, although he was trying to fight against that at the time. But the point that he was making is that a lot of people had the sense then, and I think maybe they have the sense now, of this, you know, oh, you can't control decentralized technologies. Information wants to be free. And he was pointing out, well, hey, this internet thing that you think is a decentralized technology that is naturally free actually kind of does have this architecture that allows there to be a gatekeeper, which is an important term for this conversation, I think, Mm -hmm. in the middle, right, which, you know, primarily the actual lines that the internet is running over is is one of the major... Right, the backbone, uh, yeah. Like bottlenecks where somebody can exercise control. Right. And basically pointing out that unless you address that, you know, with sort of legislation, say that, you know, demands that we have a neutral network, right? uh, then inevitably that's going to lead to control... And control that, again, goes well beyond the types of legal controls we're used to. The real, like, dark scenarios are the ones where, you know, you go searching for something uh, and it just doesn't even look like it exists, right? It doesn't even Right, you never even get a result for the thing you're searching for um, because it's been hidden from you. Or you don't even realize why, you know, the sites you're trying to go to are taking forever, but the uh, approved sites who've paid the fee are fast, you know? And these are the things that he worried about. Uh, and the reason that it wasn't a problem then was because uh, the phone network was protected by net neutrality legislation. But he saw that the internet was moving off the phone network and into other um, substrates. And he wanted to make sure that those uh, protections would continue, uh, but they didn't. And so now we have things like this Comcast Apple deal and the Comcast Netflix deal, where big companies that use a lot of bandwidth are just buying better access to the internet than other companies can possibly afford. And, you know, right now that doesn't seem like it's that uh, terrible maybe to some people, but uh, the end result of that is really something quite a lot less good than what the internet has been, uh, where it doesn't have the, the low barriers to entry that our current internet has. So it is definitely possible to fight neutrality and to fight general purpose computing and to win. Um, another thing that's happened in the last uh, decade or so is that uh, people have started to trade in their general purpose computers, which are fully reprogrammable, for application-specific computers. Uh, You probably have a few of them right now, like your cell phone and your tablet, uh, which are not x86-compatible full instruction set computers. They are able to do video and text and audio and certain things that are useful, common computer tasks on application-specific processors. Right, turning computers back into but like... But actually, they're software. They're, the software is written into the hardware of those machines and cannot be changed. Right, right. Basically, turning computers back into things like uh, TVs and toasters. toasters. Yeah. Yeah, and less like a Swiss Army knife. And there's like a, there's a Steve Jobs quote where he says something like, people don't want computers, they want toasters. But I think he realized that that was the direction his company should take. And... Uh, and now, you know, many computing products are very simple and very easy and very reliable. A lot of things that computers weren't in the 90s, but they are not general purpose computers. So if you can convince everybody to adopt these computers that they don't control and then they run them on a network that's not neutral, I think it's absolutely possible to have decentralized technology that at the same time is exhibiting centralized control. Right, and I think the pressure to do that control well only increases because if everything boils down to general computation, it kind of starts to touch every industry. So every industry that's interested in protecting you know, their livelihood becomes interested in controlling the use of, of general purpose computers. Uh, everybody who's interested in security, and we're going to get into that in a second, but like, you know, this really high stakes where, you know, you're actually putting the computer in your body or the computer can be used to print out a weapon demands control. 
in a way that I think even the population will be sympathetic to, right? Because if you can do a lot of damage with this technology, then that creates a lot of popular support. for Right. All it, it takes is one uh, bioterrorist with a home lab or something like that to uh, galvanize people for much more yeah. pervasive control. Uh, if they think it'll lead to their safety. Yeah, I mean, we're no, at this point, we're no longer talking about somebody just getting high or, you know, downloading the new music, right? Right. Like, which are, you can see how those things those are things like... Those things bother companies or they bother moralists or something, but they're not uh, the same thing as, say, terrorism. I mean, obviously, if you look at uh, what happens with airline safety after 9-11, that's more like the kind of thing we're talking about. And so, yeah, I mean, like the, the piracy war easily turns into something that's very similar to trying to protect against cyber warfare or the, uh, the issue of controlling guns easily turns into trying to control actual bioterrorism. Right. Like all of these technologies become more powerful at doing damage. They touch more aspects of our lives. They affect more industries. And so this just becomes a huge battleground where people can't afford to lose. Especially state planners who are the people you have to really worry about because they're the ones who are going to really overreach here. They're in a position where uh, if they miss something, they could see huge casualties in their country. It's going to be just totally unacceptable for them to let that risk sit. Yeah. Well, and they're going to be able to make the case to the people that, hey, we got to crack down on this because this could be really bad for all of us if it falls into the wrong hands, right? And actually, I think that that case is legitimate in a way. I mean, I think sometimes uh, there's a lot of fear-mongering that happens, but I think that in this case, maybe that fear-mongering would even be justified. Eliezer Yukowski has this sort of fun quote that I think captures this, which is called the Moore's Law of Mad Scientists which says that the minimum IQ required to destroy the world drops by one point every 18 months. And that is not obviously a mathematically rigorous statement, but it, it does imply that, you know, every year the stakes might get a little higher. So anyways, uh, to sum up where we are at this point, uh, it's extremely hard to control these technologies, but we're going to really want to, and it maybe is possible to control them if you have sort of the right gatekeeper system set up. And I think there's going to be pressure to create that and to dismantle things like net work neutrality in order to get us there. Um, but anyways, if we think about this in the big picture, right, like what are the types of responses that society could have to a world where this incredible power of uh, general computation is potentially distributed in all these people's hands, and it does have the possibility to do a lot of damage. And I think the sort of utopian response, I think, is to sort of ignore the dangers, right, is to sort of revert back to this original position that, you know, this decentralized technology will always find a way and it's it's impossible or pointless to try to control this stuff. Right. Well, this is just sort of Pollyannaism, I right. think. And it's, yeah, I think a lot of people in this community just say, well, information wants to be free, uh, you know, that the decentralized technology will always win. But we've shown how that's not necessarily the case. It, it, it doesn't seem impossible to uh, convince everyone to use some form of trusted system and prevent what they can do with their own technology and basically crack down on everything all at once. Right. So, so we're talking about extremes here. So the utopian extreme says this stuff can't be controlled ever. And then there's this other side, which is like, you know, let's actually control this stuff. We have to because it's so dangerous. And well, what if we look at what we're doing right now, we're doing a decent job of controlling it. And we're not, it's, it's relatively unconcerted. A more concerted effort could be more successful. 
Right. And and what would that that more extreme side of control look like? I think, you know, we'd have to slowly well, actually again, rolling back the actual use of these machines by replacing them all with single purpose machines is part of that. Putting all the data on the cloud uh is part of that. Right. Uh, so then yeah, the, so then the uh general purpose computers that run the cloud are owned by accountable corporations that the, you know, that the control system can ch- crack down on at any time. And individual people have these sort of dumb terminals where they can do approved activities and have computing power, but they can't actually compute in the traditional sense of they can't write their own code and expect it to run. And, you know, eventually if that gets to a world where sort of everybody is sort of on a universal platform or operating system that sort of is always going through centralized gatekeepers. Right. And it doesn't even have to be just one. It just has to be that all the operating systems are trusted and that the parties that are in charge of that trust are accountable. And that's possibly, yeah, a greater system of control than like the world has ever known. I mean, that's on the scale of Orwell in in the sense that the amount of control Going back to the Lessig point of like code is law. Especially that, if you imagine that each of these devices has a camera and a microphone and an internet connection, uh, you know, which could easily be turned on remotely by this centralized authority. Sure. Uh, I mean, this could be a literally Orwellian world, if uh, I- at least in the sense of its pervasive surveillance. Obviously, I don't think it'll have a boot in the face mentality, but um, but it could be that level of surveillance um, could easily be technologically achieved with today's technology in a slightly different um, you know, configuration than it's out there today. But here, here's the flaw in that particular system, though, is that, again, that's going to really control your average consumer that's just buying the toaster version of the computer and plugging it into the generalized network. Yep. Is it going to stop the rogue hacker or criminal uh, that, you know, is the equivalent of today's uh, criminal that really is dead set on getting guns despite gun control laws. Is it going to stop those people from then being able to, you know, release a biologically engineered virus into a crowd of people or, or, you know, hack a bunch of data and disrupt, you know, people's cars that are driving on the road autonomously or, or like whatever it is that some nefarious person wants to do, is this going to do a good job of stopping those people? Right. Well, and it's it seems like it would it would hinder some efforts, right? Because it would hinder their efforts to say take over other people's machines or do other things that are specifically related to the freedom of general purpose computing. Because um, you could crack down on where they make chips. That's something that still has to be done in a clean room. You can't print that out at home, and you could make sure True, that they yeah. don't make any more. Uh, general purpose chips, that all chips are application specific and are locked down. It doesn't seem likely to happen, but it it does seem possible in the same way that you can retard uh, nuclear uh, technology growth. But there still would be some techniques available, some decentralized techniques available to the hacker, I think, even with only application specific computing available uh, or old computers, which you can't get rid of all the old computers yeah, that exist in the world. We're flooded with chips already that Even could be repurposed. Even old computers that are slow could potentially be useful for, say, writing malicious code that pretends to uh, be signed code and gets onto people's machines uh, despite the trust. Um, so it is, I think, reasonably possible to imagine this still failing. Even this extreme, draconian, over-the-top version 
uh, might still fail to prevent all existential risks. Which means consumers get a bad deal and they get... They get the worst possible deal. This is like the Benjamin Franklin thing of uh, giving up your security or giving up your privacy for security and getting nothing. You're like giving up your general purpose computing for security and you're getting neither. (laughs) Right. So there's, we've given the two extremes, the sort of like utopian, like ignore the problem, yay, decentralized technology. And this sort of like, we're going to crack down on everything and basically, you know, maybe not even catch every criminal. Both of those cases seem to end to us in basically some kind of enabled terrorism winning. (laughs) Yeah, which or at is, least that's a, a likelihood that's unacceptable it, in those scenarios. It's intolerable, yeah. and uh, so I'm wondering: are there is there a middle of the road solution? Is there a third solution? I I'm not, have no idea, honestly. I'm asking questions more than anything here. The only thing that I thought that I wanted to talk about is, you know, maybe one middle of the road solution is something using more of a, the analogy of like an immune system, right? A distributed immune system. This you'd pair this with something like David Brin's Transparent Society. So you'd be you'd certainly be giving up privacy. Uh, but it would be, you know, what, what do they call covalence or surveillance where right. everybody's spying on everybody else and everything's being monitored. So it's not, it's not like the second scenario where it's sort of top down or in control, but it's like you, you basically allow all the general purpose computers and sensors to flourish and they all, you know, they just encourage everybody to share all their data as much as possible, possibly even by passing laws to that effect, you have to share but you don't otherwise tell them what they can do with the machines. And so you just th- therefore rely on everybody else to watch everybody else and, and computers to catch the patterns and, and help the authorities fix the potential problems. Right. right? Well, well, by sharing, by encouraging all the computers to share information openly with each other and communicate openly with each other, they should be able to run sort of immune system algorithms. Yeah. That would basically be watching all of these sensors. Problems. Right. Yeah. And would hopefully, you know, identify the hidden pattern that would be the person, you know, planning to do something dangerous. Right, right. And another example of this in science fiction is in the Marisek books, right, where they have uh, a a distributed terrorist uh, sort of menace. They call them nasties. They're basically nanotech bombs. I call them nanotech bombs. And they... uh, they started at some point in history before the book begins. And then uh, when we're in the book that they've built is like a nanotech shield that's sort of pervasive across everything. And people accept it, even though it basically enables surveillance because there's like these nano sensors everywhere. But uh, what they also do is they spring into action whenever uh, somebody gets eaten up by some nanosites and uh, they quarantine them off so that they can't become a giant problem in their society. Now, obviously, that's a super far future technology, but the analogy, I think, is similar. Well, you could apply that to, to biotech. I mean, again, if, you're, if right. everybody's walking around with all these sensors on them, uh, you know, then the second that one of these, you know, organisms gets released or someone's caught on a camera doing something suspicious, everybody's who's in the area gets a cell phone buzz saying that you're quarantined, don't leave, like take these precautions, cover your mouth. Immediately it orders up, you know, it communicates with the authorities and right. starts airdropping antidotes in or whatever it is. You know what I mean? Like you can imagine a level of coordination right. that uh, wouldn't be that different from what we have now. Well, and it would require a lot of government power to pull off this kind of uh, organization. But if you had a transparent society where that government power was also reporting everything it did and was also accountable after the fact, I think at least I would accept that. I would accept that level of power in the government that can be watched. This is what stops it from being like, you know, thought crime, because obviously there's a part of this where it's like the algorithm identifies that, you know, the worst case scenario, you're you're doing some suspicious pattern of behavior that looks like terrorism 
And so the uh, robot drones just like pull out their guns and fire on you like because it thinks you're about to kill a crowd of people. And maybe you were and maybe you weren't. But if all of that's on tape, all of that's captured, all of that, we can go back through the log files and see what happened. Um, and somebody can be held accountable for that. It's not, it's not as disturbing. It's not the same as, you know, the type of thought crime scenarios where it's just, you know, completely top down and we have no right. recourse. Well, so it's like thought crime and it's also sort of like pre-crime in Minority Report. Right. That's, I guess, what I, yeah. And, um... And so that's kind of interesting to me because I think like thought crime in the Orwellian sense of like punishing you for thinking the wrong things. Pre-crime, yeah. Uh, I <clears> think <throat> is you know uh, probably not not something we want to do. Just substitute pre-crime for my statement. Yeah. Okay, that's yeah, what yeah. I meant to say. So and that's really interesting because uh, we are obviously going to have pre-crime of some kind. Like this is coming between this and uh, we'll do another podcast on this later. But the idea of uh, you know. Uh, being able to infer your mental state from your physicality is something that there's a lot of research into. And once your eye movements and pulse rate can be correlated with your video data to, you know, give a, a reasonably accurate intentional readout, uh, we're going to start to see push for, for pre-crime. Well, they already uh, convict me of pre-crime when they preemptively shut down my credit card because I bought too many things on the internet yes. and they think I'm committing fraud. And, that's, and they think you're a fraud. That's their fraud algorithm gets gets triggered. So this is sort of the nightmare scenario we're imagining is like, take that uh, fraud algorithm that uh, protects your credit card and imagine it protecting us against terrorism. It will perhaps catch lots of terrorists before they commit terrible terrorism, but it will also mistakenly identify some other people. And what we do when we make those mistakes is a big part of what makes our system uh, corrupt or not. So I think it's really interesting to think about pre-crime. Of course, in Minority Report, what they do with the pre-criminals is they freeze them so that they can never commit their crime. Uh, But I find that very silly. I kind of feel like in a more realistic world, if you're identified as a potential pre-crime committer, you shouldn't be punished. You should be tracked and informed that you're being tracked. And wouldn't that stop a good number of crimes? And then, you know, since they're tracking you, they should be able to tell immediately if you've decided not to let that stop you. And then somebody could physically intervene. It seems like a logical first step. I mean, you know, I'll just kind of talking to them also and just that's seeing, what i mean i yeah. think if you were to uh send somebody a, a text message that says you've been identified as a pre-crime uh potential criminal uh based on some criteria uh we suggest that you do not commit this crime because if you do you know the punishment will be the following and we have the following case against you already uh that might i feel like that would discourage quite a lot of crime well yeah and, and th- this whole pre- I, I don't see any reason to p- uh, punish somebody for getting that message. Although, obviously, I do see a reason to punish somebody for, say, you know, killing someone or stealing. Well, or if it's like literally they're about to open fire on a crowd of people, you kind of want the drone to just gun them down without... Well, that's different, right? Because uh, pulling a gun on a bunch of people is already a crime, right? I mean, if we haven't changed our laws, I think that's already a threat of deadly force. So you just get them for that before they have a chance well, to shoot Well, but right? maybe they haven't pulled it yet. Uh, maybe they're just walking up to it. Or maybe it's not a gun. Maybe they're about to release some kind of uh, biological agent, or at least maybe it knows with some percentage of certainty that they're about to release a biological agent, but it's not 100% certain, right? Right, but again, you can take somebody out non-lethally in a lot of cases. Right, there's options. I'm not saying you'd never have a situation where you took the chance and let the drone shoot somebody down. Uh, Certainly, I mean, we allow police officers to shoot people down when they're armed, for example, uh, now. So I I don't think that that's... The case, but uh, 
you'd think that it would you'd want it to prioritize as many non-lethal options oh, yeah. as possible oh, yeah. of course and really the goal to me would not be to punish pre-crime individuals it'd be to prevent the crime from being committed and therefore the punishment from being necessary um that's true that's true and i i agree with all that and my so that's uh, that's a way that i think minority report doesn't quite think through what what people would want from a pre-crime but i do think pre-crime is coming we're gonna have some version of that soon well, my original point about it was that this pre-crime, which is coming, and I guess I was sort of just taking it as a given that it was coming, uh, but I'm glad we've gone into more detail so that we all now can be worried about it. But I think <laughs> it's, it's less concerning to me in the context of this kind of transparent society right. because, you know... Because it comes down to accountability. What if they make a mistake or what if, uh, you know... Somebody has it out for you and, you know, messes with the system or something. You know, and I, I'm willing to accept the reality that the world has a certain amount of, you know, cold-hearted math behind it and that, you know, maybe you make a mistake one out of a hundred times and kill an innocent person, but it's like if you kill one person, you save, you know, millions of lives, I think. Right. I would accept that math as long as we can vet it. As long as you can investigate you, it later. <laughs> right. Find out why the <laughs> algorithm went wrong, uh, you know. Propose, punish somebody uh, if necessary. Uh, right. You know? Punish somebody if necessary. Propose an uh, an improvement if if possible, or at the very least, just go through and make sure the numbers are really what they say they are, and say, okay, well, no, this person was innocent. They're going to get exonerated officially after death, and we're going to continue the program because we can verify, you know, this many lives saved, you know, or whatever. I I, I think it's reasonable to have those arguments. Of course, the public might freak out. You know, I, I think there's um, there's relatively good research that shows that people, like, don't have a good uh, rational basis for judging, like, how many lives you're saving. That's one of the questions they use in those, like, behavioral economics examples of uh, irrationality. Um, uh, well, people have what's called scope neglect, where, right, like, they don't really see save a huge one or difference right, between, right. like, how, how many zeros you add to the end of the number. Like, right. at, at a certain point, people just tune out, which you can understand why. I mean... Yeah, you can understand why, uh, but that's something that might make that public debate difficult. Like, if those numbers get out and it's like, oh, 10 innocent people were killed and 10 million innocent lives were saved. That sounds like a great value proposition to me, but, of course... Some people might be like, but Tennyson people were killed. It's a great value proposition, but it also should be scrutinized constantly, constantly and, and it you know, should always be updating and improving something that's working at that level. Try right. to get it down to one. One or zero. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think everybody will draw their lines in different places, but I think uh, it makes sense that you could have distributed uh, surveillance and centralized authority uh, and still have freedom as long as you have a transparent society that's sort of what what would make that possible well and this immune system too wouldn't i mean the more extreme parts of it you know where there's literally drones and quarantines and antidotes dropped in and stuff would need uh probably a government but uh again in a transparent society everybody's device could be you know essentially running its own immune system program that's flagging and reporting at least in an informational sense right. suspicious things that it sees so everybody in a way can be participating in this i don't want it to look so so top down right like i think you know and there to the extent that it's not maybe directly using force i think that this can be everybody can contribute to right this. right well and if we were in a sort of libertarian paradise where there was no government you could even imagine this being an essentially entirely voluntary thing, but you know it would have to be everyone who who participated. Um, but since governments exist, 
then they're unlikely to just stop existing. Probably the the force elements of this would be implemented by a government, which would mean that government would have to be highly uh, accountable. Sure. Um, in order for this to work. So yeah, that's a really uh, interesting far future place we went to with this uh, podcast. I mean, this this topic quickly gets big fast i mean i think that's yeah. what's so interesting about it i mean you start talking about like piracy you know you're trying to stop kids from you know downloading mp3s in their dorm room and then you realize where this is going that like everything's becoming a computer and that piracy becomes eventually something that uh is a sort it of can destroy the world yeah <laughs> it's you know it's it's interesting and i think you know Somebody we can't copy a weapon design and printed it out in their dorm room and is pirating the weapon design, yeah. and now and now that weapon, you know, because it's extremely powerful, is is uh, you know destroying the world. Yeah, I would say we basically can't have enough cultural conversations about this stuff now. I mean, I think this is the time to do it. Right, so. right. We have to get really comfortable with the idea of architecting this system of both control and transparency and freedom as well, uh, which we because want. Because otherwise, yeah, the only other solution is like uh, an, an ineffective draconian solution, right? Um, or, or just some Pollyanna la da you don't do anything about the problem and you let it destroy you, which obviously doesn't sound like a great idea either. So, uh, yeah, this is definitely something we need to talk about, even though it sounds like it's really far off in the future, and it is far off compared to some of the other things we've talked about on the podcast. It's still, it's, it's not too soon to, to start thinking about how we could do this well. All right. Well, thanks for listening. Uh, I hope we've contributed to the conversation as well as we could, but... Uh, as always, if you're an iTunes user, uh, find us and rate us. We could use that or send us an email. Uh, and uh, we'll be back next week. Yeah, see you next week. To subscribe or leave a comment on this episode, please visit reviewthefuture.com. You can also send emails to feedback at reviewthefuture.com. Thanks for listening.